You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I had to go have an eye exam to renew uh, my prescription and to get new contact lenses. And and I don't know that uh, everyone's had uh, the experience of going to an eye exam, but there are a few things about it that make it just uniquely uncomfortable. For one thing, um, and this is a big thing for me, you spend way too much time far too close to the face of a stranger they are like, so if you go get a physical with a regular doctor, like they push and pull on different parts of your body, checking everything out. But the eye doctor, because they have to like look in your eye, I mean, you were like nose to nose with this person that you do not know, especially post COVID. I've remained like the six foot thing is like, I just feel like that's a good human rule. Stay back from me. And this is just way close in your face. Now, the worst part is by far, and if you've had this, then you've experienced it, is the quote unquote puff of air. Yeah, that they shoot in your eye, testing for glaucoma. Now, that has to be in quotes because that's what they call it. What it actually feels like (laughs) is like they are trying to completely blind you with an air can every single time. (laughs) Now, the final part of the uh, eye exam is they slap that. I had to look up the name of it. It's called a phoropter in front of you that makes you look like some kind of weird demon owl. And so they put this thing on you, and then the doctor makes these adjustments, and then they give you these two options. So then they will ask you, mine just did it. She was like, okay, well, is number one more clear? And then she makes a change. Or is number two more clear? And I don't know what the deal is with the eye. Like, I am never more uncertain and (laughs) indecisive than in that moment. You'd think my whole future rests on getting the answer to this question right. Now, my insanity aside, the point of this test is simple. It's to discern which lens is going to help you see most clearly. And the truth is, we don't all wear glasses, we don't all have to wear contacts, but we do all go through life perceiving our experience through a lens. And that lens could be something that happened to us in the past. The lens through which we perceive our experience could be the feelings that we carry around. It could be specific words that have been spoken over us. The lens through which we perceive our experience is oftentimes informed by the ideas and the convictions that we hold or any other number of factors that inform the way that we experience our lives. But make no mistake, your lens informs your experience. So two people could walk through the exact same circumstances, but they experience them radically different simply because they are perceiving life through differing lenses. And this idea has everything to do with the book of Ecclesiastes that we're gonna begin sitting with together this morning. And so before we start this journey through this book, I think it's important that we get some basic background information on it so that you really understand what it is that we're digging into. So. If you don't know, the name of this book comes from its central character, Koaleth. Now, that Hebrew name, Koaleth, when it's translated into Greek, is the word Ecclesiastes. In English, it just simply means teacher. 
which is very fitting because as a genre, this is wisdom, wisdom literature. So similar to Proverbs or the book of Job, this is wisdom literature. And wisdom literature in the scripture is always designed to help us learn how to live more fruitfully in this world. Now, scholars' best guess on when this book was written is just after Israel's exile, probably most likely sometime in the third century BC. And as we're gonna see, the narrator presents the teacher, as he's called throughout this book, as Solomon. But the truth is the majority of scholarship believes that it was written by someone or even a small group of people uh, whom want, they want us to think of the narrator as someone like Solomon in all of his riches and power. And so rather than actually being written by Solomon, we're supposed to envision someone like him as having written this wisdom book. Now here's the thing about Ecclesiastes that is a bit different from a lot of other biblical books. It's pretty uncomfortable. And it's uncomfortable because of how honestly it actually reflects many of the experiences and the beliefs and the doubts that we all have. But, but oftentimes we would rather ignore. And so it's this very glaring example of how messy faith can be in actuality. There's no way around the fact that, that all of us, myself included, all of us would prefer a, a tidy faith, a faith that's void of confusion, a faith that is void of tension and complexity and struggle. But the truth is that's not how faith works. That's not how life works. And, and this is where so much of this book's value lies. The reformer Martin Luther said, we should read this noble little book every day precisely because it so firmly rejects sentimental religiosity. And so Ecclesiastes invites us to observe the struggle of a successful, powerful, affluent, and influential person as they work very hard to try to find meaning in life through a very human lens. Meaning, like you and I are prone to do, the teacher is going to process, and we get to watch all of this play out in real time. It's fascinating. But he, he's going to process life process his experience, process his observations through the lens of his own wisdom and his own reason. So when I step back as a human being and I look at what's happening, here's the conclusions that I come to. That's what the teacher is doing. And in so doing, he reminds us of the limits of living with a purely human lens. Remember in Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, God says this. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. And your ways are not my ways. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, an essential implication of what God is saying in Isaiah is that the human lens through which we experience all of our lives is not the only lens. And so as we kick off this study, I want to start with a message called Change Your Lens. And we're going to be uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, obviously it'd be awkward if we started in like chapter 7. So we'll start in chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to start with uh, this example of the teacher trying to process the meaning of material gain through this human lens. So look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It starts like this. It says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. 
Now here comes his really upbeat, encouraging message. Ready? Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. So again, verse 1 attributes this book to Solomon, calling the teacher the son of David king in Jerusalem. But no scholarship that I've seen believes it was written by the hand of Solomon. It was probably written far after he was already dead. But it is influenced by so much of his wisdom and so much of his thought for sure, but it likely was not written by him. Now, we needn't be unsettled by that. We needn't be thrown off by that. What we should instead understand is that we're supposed to understand the narrator as someone who is very much like Solomon. More significantly, the teacher here introduces the overarching theme of this book. And as you can see, it's a super encouraging one. He says, everything is futile. Now, the Hebrew word that we translate as futile here is the Hebrew word havel. It's a very important word in this book. And it's translated in at least 11 different ways into our English translations. The NIV, for instance, translates it as the word meaningless. The ESV translates it as the word vanity. When Eugene Peterson was translating the message, he used the word smoke because it can also mean vapor. Now, Havel appears some 38 times throughout Ecclesiastes, so regardless of the particular English word that we use to translate it, what matters most, what's essential, is that we understand the specific way that the teacher is using this word. And the truth is, if we were to skip ahead to verse 14, which we'll get to next week, we do receive a little insight on what Havel means. Because he says again, everything is futile, listen to this part, a pursuit of the wind. So I want you to think for a second about the futility of chasing the wind. Now, we've had, we had like two polar vortexes this week, which who thought that was a real thing? Uh, I got to drive on 215 in the midst of one of them. I'm here to tell you, it's a real thing. It's basically a snow tornado where the wind just whips round and round and round. It was insane to drive in. But I want you to think about the futility of trying to chase wind. It's futile because you can't catch it. Now, one of the most, and I just realized that this week as I was thinking through all this, one of the most old man things about me that has, it's a recent development that gets a little concerning, but, but most mornings when I wake up and it's still quiet in our house and dark outside, I step out my back door to check the weather (laughs) and to look at the mountains. I'm like, I want to make sure those mountains are still there. And I'm not sure that the government's not feeding me some kind of false weather agenda. Okay. So I'm not sure I trust these apps. So I just got to check it all out for myself. And as we all know, it's like full-blown winter here in Salt Lake. And so more mornings than not, lately, when I've gone outside to make sure the weather's still there, (laughs) it's been very snowy and very cold. So when I stepped out my back door this morning, and I just like to start my day with like some fresh inversion air. (laughs) So when when I took that deep breath of cold air and then I exhaled in the cold, what do you think happened? I could see my breath because it was so cold. Now, what would have happened if upon my exhale, I quickly tried to catch that breath with my hands? Nothing would have happened. It's not if you're like, I don't, he tricks us. I don't like to answer his questions. There's no trick. Like nothing's going to happen. You can't catch a breath in your hand, just like you can't catch the wind. And so trying to catch the wind is a futile pursuit. And that is what the teacher means when he uses the word havel. 
And understanding that makes this overarching theme all the more uncomfortable, uncomfortable for us. Because notice again, he says, everything is futile. Now, he is obviously going to unpack and to nuance this so much more, but before we go any further, I just want to real quick, I want to highlight three what I think are encouraging, though they might sound a bit discouraged, but three lessons that we learn from Ecclesiastes about messy faith, okay? The truth is faith is messy. It isn't neat. Our journey doesn't usually work in a straight line. There's all kinds of things that take place that are confusing to us. And so what are some lessons that we walk away, even just in these first two verses, understanding from this book? Here's number one. Questions are welcome. Questions in messy faith are welcome. Because this teacher is going to ask, he's going to do it in just a second, some very big and very uncomfortable questions. And here's the point. That is okay. I know that there are streams of of Christian faith, where it is not safe and it is not okay to ask questions. There are other religions and other faiths where it's certainly not okay to ask questions. But one of the things that is unique about historically orthodox Christianity is that it welcomes our questions. So he's going to ask all kinds of questions in this book. So do so many of the psalmists. So do so many of the people who interact with Jesus in the Gospels. And the fact that these questions are in the scriptures indicates to us that God welcomes them. So the first thing we learn is that questions are welcome. The second thing we learn is that life is complex. Life is complex. There are a number of times that the teacher contradicts himself in this book. Now, I have been in the church my whole life. I don't, there's not a t- point in time that I remember not being a part of a Christian church. And I've got to tell you, I've, I've heard people outside the church say for years, um, well, the Bible constantly contradicts itself. And then I've heard Christian apologists say, you know what? The Bible never contradicts itself. If you don't understand it, it's you that doesn't understand it. It's not God. It's not. And I feel like, well, that's, that's a very convenient argument for you. And so here's what I tell you. In Ecclesiastes, you're going to see the Bible contradict itself because this teacher is going to pretty consistently contradict what he says from verse to verse. So I'll give you an example of this. On the one hand, he's going to say some version of everything is futile 38 times, but he is also going to allude to the goodness of life some 51 times. That's a contradiction. Everything is futile and life is grand. That seems very contradictory. So why does this contradiction exist? It exists because life is complex. Sometimes life's awesome. Other times life is unbearable. The point is life is complex. The third thing is that struggle is normal. Struggle is normal. That's one of the most important things I want people to understand pastorally. To struggle in your faith is a normal thing experience. Everyone who has ever walked with God for any amount of time has struggled with their faith. Most of us want faith to feel like a warm bath. We want it to be something that we slip into and all of our worries drift away. But in reality, it's a wrestling match. It isn't easy. It is a struggle. And so through a purely human lens, If we take God out of the picture and it's just the earthly human lens, finding meaning in life very often feels futile. 
In fact, even if you are, and this is what we're supposed to learn from this teacher who is positioned as someone like Solomon, even if you are wealthy, even if you are influential, even if you are powerful, even if you have anything in life that we believe will bring ultimate meaning, it often feels futile. I mean, how m- we know so much more now about celebrity life than people used to even 50, 60 years ago because of social media. Like, we, we see celebrities, we see political leaders, we see people that have all of these similar things that, that, that Solomon would have had, and, and how many of them are just miserable. So clearly, there is nothing that we can possess that is going to bring about ultimate meaning. When we experience life through the lens of our own reason and our own wisdom alone, everything can feel quite futile. Now, the teacher is going to give us his first of many examples. Look at verse 3. He says, What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? Now, throughout this book, the teacher is going to apply his theme that everything is futile to different pursuits and experiences. And he starts by asking this very broad question What do we really gain for all of our efforts? What do we really gain for all of our efforts? Think about this. Every single one of us spends our whole lives pouring ourselves out, trying to acquire various kinds of wealth. Relational wealth, material wealth, the wealth of influence or power or love. Like So whatever it might be, we're all trying to to gain various kinds of wealth. And so the teacher's question is, what do we really gain for all that effort? What do we really gain from that? And before we let him unpack this question with these handful of examples that he's going to provide from nature, we need to understand what he means by this phrase, under the sun, because it's going to appear almost 30 times throughout the book. So here's the thing. Anytime we read, and as you maybe read ahead in the weeks to come, anytime you read that phrase, under the sun, what you should hear him saying is, life apart from God. So when he says under the sun, he's talking about like God's out of the picture just from an earthly vantage point, the natural laws of the universe, life apart from God. Under the sun is his way of describing life without God. And so he's asking, what if what we see, what if what we understand, and what if what we experience here on earth is all there is? And so the question that he starts with is, what do we really gain for all of our efforts in a life without God. Now look at verse four. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. Panting, it hurries back to the place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So notice, these are examples that he points to from nature to substantiate this point that he's making. So his point is to say, generations come and go, and the world just keeps moving forward. The sun sets and rises and hurries back to do the same thing day in and day out. The wind goes round and round, streams run into the sea, but the sea's never full. So he's just using these examples from nature, and then he restates his theme. Look at verse 8. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, 
And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before and of those who will come after. There will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. So he says, essentially, the reality is there's nothing new. There is this redundancy to life that has a, has a way of robbing life of ultimate meaning. Everything that is and will be has already been before. There is a meaningless redundancy to life. And he even anticipates one of his readers objecting and saying, yeah, 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 but look at this thing over here. This thing is new. And then he just rejects that going, yeah, but everything that has been has already existed in the ages before. Nothing has ever been created that will infuse our lives with ultimate meaning. So there is no point at which we will attain something and be whole. And our problems will go away. And we will exclusively be happy. And all of our wounds will be healed. There's nothing that you can possess, attain, no place that you can get to that makes that happen. That's what he's saying. And then he ends verse 11, basically saying, we're all gonna die and no one's gonna remember us. So, so how can we say, because, and he's not wrong, like, he's not wrong. We are like, I love you. I hate to burst your, like, we're going to die at some point. That's what happens. And so how can we really gain anything of value for all of our efforts? Now, remember, he is processing all of this. This is the most important thing for us to understand about this book. Otherwise, we're going to end up like a cult with a mass suicide by the end of this thing. He is processing all of this through the human lens. Now, we have the benefit of living on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, what that means for us is we understand something in full that the people of the Old Testament, including the writer or writers of Ecclesiastes, only knew in part, only hoped would become reality. We have seen thanks to scripture, what, who Jesus is and what he has done. And so let's consider what it is that the teacher is saying, but through the lens of Jesus rather than just through the human lens. Because here's the thing. The teacher isn't wrong when you consider his point of view. Under the sun or life without God guarantees that what has been will be. There is ultimately nothing really new. Any meaning that we can experience is temporal. The meaning that we experience apart from God is, is fleeting. It's like a vapor or smoke that dissipates or disappears. But where the teacher would be completely wrong is believing that the human lens is the only lens. Because remember, Jesus is not bound by under the sun rules. He said as much. In John 8, 23, Jesus said, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Now that is tremendous news because it reminds us that the life, the death, the resurrection, the ongoing presence of Jesus invites us to put on a new lens. In John chapter 8, verse 21 to 32, Jesus speaks a, what he calls a new word that promises freedom to us. In John 3.3, 3, Jesus offers new birth into new life. 
in Luke 22.20, Jesus establishes a new covenant of grace. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 5 and 6, Jesus breaks and conquers what has to be nature's most absolute law when he conquers death through his resurrection. Then in Revelation 21, verses 1 and 5, Jesus promises, John promises that Jesus is going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And so because of all of this, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, the Apostle Paul would push back on this human lens that we've heard so much about from the teacher this morning. And he says this, Therefore, my dear brothers, so because of who Jesus is, because of everything that he has done, be steadfast, immovable, and always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord, listen to this part, is not in vain. That is the ultimate truth through the lens of Jesus. And so our big idea this morning is simply this. Jesus infuses every effort with meaning. Jesus infuses every effort with meaning. With Jesus, our effort is never in vain. Our work matters. And I don't just mean your, I mean your job, but not just your job. I mean any of the work that we do, any of the emotional, mental work that we do to be whole and to heal, any of the work that we do in our marriages, that we do in our relationships, any of the work that we do in our actual job or any physical, like every, every kind of work that we do is infused with meaning by Jesus. Even the small and seemingly insignificant parts can be infused with meaning. Jesus infuses our every effort with meaning. And so here's the real question that I believe is gonna come up again and again throughout this study. If Jesus' lens differs from ours, which it does over and over and over again, how do we learn to adopt his rather than just ours? If his lens is different, how do we learn to adopt that? How can we change our lens? And the truth is we could spend weeks on a very complicated answer to that question. But for the sake of brevity and simplicity, let me highlight what I believe are the three most important steps for us as we set out on this journey through this book together. Here's the three most important things for us to do. Number one is immerse yourself in Jesus' lens. Immerse yourself in Jesus' lens. One of the reasons that we read scripture is to understand God's heart and mind. And despite what some people might claim, scripture does not make sense of every experience that we have. It doesn't. I've experienced some things in life, I'm certain you have too, that just baffle you. You're like, I don't know why God did that. I don't know why he let it happen that way. I don't know why God hasn't answered this prayer. I don't know why God heals one person over another. There are things that scripture in our experience doesn't make sense of. But it does help us understand the lens through which God sees this world and the lens through which he sees us. And the truth is one reason that we struggle to understand our experience is that we aren't putting on his lens. See, that human lens, it's our natural one. You don't have to work for it. It just simply exists. But adopting his is going to require intention. So immerse yourself in his lens through scripture. When you're reading the Bible, ask, what does this teach me about who God is? What does this teach me about the way that he works? What does this teach me about the way that he sees me? 
we read asking ourselves these questions in order to immerse ourselves in his lens. Secondly, process your experience with Jesus. Process your experience with Jesus. Again, we learn from this teacher that questions are welcome, that life is complex, and that struggle is normal. Jesus welcomes all of that. Do you know not one time in the gospel accounts does Jesus rebuke, condemn, or shame anyone for questioning or struggling? Not one time. And so don't deny what it is that you're experiencing. Talk with him about it. So maybe you need to leave here today and go get a notebook or a journal and every day or a couple of times a week you need to sit down and that's the place that you are going to pour out and, and process everything that you're experiencing with Jesus. Let it be this ongoing conversation between the two of you. And so we immerse ourselves in Jesus' lens. We process our experience with him. And then thirdly, we have to choose to trust Jesus' lens. We have to choose to trust Jesus' lens. See, in so many ways, this last point is the essence of faith. Faith is learning to trust Jesus even when something doesn't make sense to us. Even when we don't understand something that he has done or allowed. Even when we may not agree. Like, I'm going to tell you right now, there's some things that God's allowed in my life I do not agree with. If I was him, I would have gone, we're, we we're going to go with plan B because plan A was not fun. So there's going to be things that we don't agree with. And we have to learn to trust his lens. And I do just as a practical point, I want you to know community can be a huge help in all of this. So for those of you that are in a community group, really lean into your community groups through this season. So as we close, I want you to hear and to know that the feelings that oftentimes become the lens through which we see life, our feelings are a good gift from God. Our feelings signal to us something that we need to see, something we need to pay attention to, and something that we need to tend to. So our feelings are a good gift. Furthermore, we have incredible minds that are capable of amazing reasoning abilities. And our feelings and our own reason can be a very misguiding lens. And so we have to learn to immerse ourselves in the lens of Jesus who infuses everything with meaning. We have to learn to process our experience with him and we have to learn to trust him even when we don't feel like it. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we just openly confess to you that there are things that we experience that don't make sense to us. There are things that we see in this world that cause conflict in our hearts and in our minds. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would give us the humility right now to acknowledge that we don't know everything, we don't see everything that you're doing, we don't always understand what's happening, but I also pray that you would give us the faith, the trust that you do. Lord, would you teach us more and more about your lens, the way in which you see the world. God, would you give us the courage and the, the vulnerability to openly and honestly process with you 
what we think and what we feel and what we see. And would you give us the grace necessary to trust you even when it doesn't make sense? Lord, as we head out in just a few moments into another week, I pray that we would go with you and that somehow in a myriad of different ways that you would infuse so much of what we do with meaning this week because that you are using everything in our lives, everything that we experience to form us more and more in the image of Jesus. Lord, you want to use everything in our lives, the the biggest things to the smallest things, to take us deeper into relationship with you. So everything is meaningful. Lord, would you help us to learn to see that? And we thank you for who you are, for all you have done, for all you are doing, and for all you will do. We love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.